0: To Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle
1: Chen. Hi Michelle. Hey Sarah. Welcome to Belabored Episode 195. We are still recording from lockdown. We are still doing our new series of belabored stories over at the Descent Magazine website, descentmagazine.org. So far, we have talked to a whole bunch of workers who've written in to us, tagged us on Twitter, or otherwise reached out to us to talk about what it's like working and not working in the coronavirus crisis. We've heard from pharmacy technicians, sanitation workers, warehouse workers, and producers of high-end vegan fake meat. We've talked to people all over the country, and we plan to keep going as long as possible. And to do that, we want to hear from you. You can email us at belabored or reach out to Michelle or I individually. Today, we're going to look at the organizing at Amazon and how the coronavirus may have just given it, ironically, a big boost, but at the cost of workers' safety. First, though, the news. Some of you probably heard about the pickets at GE factories and headquarters, impeccably socially distanced actions, By workers who are demanding that the company use its idled manufacturing capacity to make desperately needed ventilators. I spoke with Adam Kaczynski with IUE CWA Local 201 in Lynn, Massachusetts, about how those actions came about, why they matter, and how quickly we could, in fact, turn factories into manufacturers of life-saving goods. So when did the conversation start among the workers about making ventilators?
2: March 24th.
1: Yeah, tell me how that got started.
2: There's been, you know, deindustrialization happening, right. in lots of the manufacturing states, um, and we've been told it's inevitable. It's trade, it's competition. And we've seen our plant go from thousands and thousands of people, and we're down to about twelve hundred members. What used to not be able to park in the plant, now half the things a parking lot. Um, there's still idle buildings and some idle capacity, plants all over the country like that. So it came up because we've been fighting to keep uh, union jobs and manufacturing jobs in the United States. And right now, there's an opportunity uh, for these life-saving ventilators and, um, and empty idle capacity. It feels like a perfect fit.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've talked to folks at different plants that are being closed who have all sort of said, like, there's stuff we need to make. Let us make it. But this crisis really seems to drive that point home, right? So in terms of of turning around and and being able to manufacture ventilators or or any number of different things that might be necessary now and in the future, um, how hard would that be, do you think?
2: I think GE posted $95 billion of profit last year, so uh, anything's possible. Manufacturing, right, is what workers in these facilities do. Um, And so I think that it would be totally, uh, totally possible for GE to make the kind of investments in manufacturing in these plants that would make ventilator production possible. Where there's idle capacity on machines right now, you could start making metal uh, metal parts or ventilators within you know twenty four hours mm-hmm. as far as the assembly and the electronics and everything, yeah. uh, I think that should that that could take a little bit more time, but right. there's a huge demand for these things, and there's layoffs happening. So there's no reason why why engineers cannot say, "Here are the programs or here are the blueprints for the mm-hmm. for the parts that we need in these ventilators um and we could get up and running you know very quickly on at least the metal components uh, making metal components inside of them
1: yeah so tell me about how the first action went that you guys had last week
2: well, it was good considering the circumstances of a global pandemic we found you know a, a short list of people to help um to help get the message out out of concern for spreading germs and and we decided to pick it outside of the plant in Lynn, and then outside of GE headquarters yeah. um, to raise this demand. The, the way that I look at it is that in every crisis, these corporations come out of it on top. So NAFTA was a crisis for us. Right. And what, what did use it for? They used it to ship U.S. union manufacturing jobs overseas to non-union places. Right. Uh, After Hurricane Katrina, what happened? The the real estate developers came in and decimated whole neighborhoods. Well, in the invasion of Baghdad, the first thing they did was set up free market zones, free enterprise zones in Baghdad. So I think that the union workers are tired of watching the rich and corporations take advantage of crises uh, in their benefit to screw us over. And we have a different vision of how the world should work. And that is, you know, when there is something you can do that's productive for society, um, that is needed, and you have the skills to do it, profit should not be the overwhelming motive for what we produce in our plants.
1: That was Adam Kasinski from Lynn, Massachusetts. If you are taking inspiration from these GE workers and making similar demands at your workplace,
3: we want to hear from you. Belabored at DissentMagazine.org. Barnes & Noble's, the giant chain bookseller, has somehow managed to chug along during the economic lockdown, presumably because books are considered an essential service while we're all holed up in quarantine. But the workers at Barnes & Noble's warehouse in Monroe, New Jersey, have been complaining that their workplace is unsafe. Following reports of several co-workers getting diagnosed with COVID-19, some workers organized a protest this week to demand that the company shut down the warehouse and reopen it only when it is fully disinfected. The workers were supported by Movimento Cosecha, Warehouse Workers Stand Up, and the Laundry Distribution and Food Service Joint Board. The workers are particularly concerned that the warehouse is not adhering to social distancing guidelines or providing adequate personal protective gear. There are also suspicions that many workers are showing symptoms but have not yet had a formal diagnosis. One of the workers, Cynthia Medina, spoke about why she took part in the action through a colleague who translated.
4: Okay, So today's process was about you know, demanding workers' rights uh, for a clean and healthy uh, place to work at, <laughs> and also for our... Um, make sure that we are protected like during this, uh, this coronavirus crisis. And we also, I do, I participated today in uh, on behalf of my of my other coworkers and also to protect the, the health of my family. So like one of the concerns is that there are all there, there are many workers that have been, uh, already have tested positive for coronavirus. And we didn't have the, any of the safety precautions to make sure that we did not get infected as well. Que we wanted to like be shut down for 15 days and that way people that were exposed to the virus um, uh, you know are able to quarantine and then we're able to find out you know if people are not if people can't are showing symptoms also we are asking people to get you know, the company to pay for the days that we're gonna for the 15 days that we're going to be out or, or the company is shut down um, and also because we you know, like the the workers are, um, you know, all all your families can also be exposed to the to the virus. Uh, no, que regresemos nada más a trabajar a un lugar seguro. Because we want to return back to a place that is a safe, that is clean, and we are also asking, something that I miss. Sorry, is that they're also asking the company to, uh, like disinfect the place of, uh, over the 15 days that they're going to be out, because they want to return to a place that is safe for work.
3: That was Cynthia Medina, one of the participants, in a protest at the Barnes & Noble's warehouse in Monroe. The Bernie Sanders presidential
1: campaign is suspended almost certainly over. The thing that began in 2015 as a wild long shot and introduced millions of Americans to the concept of democratic socialism is probably done. There will be approximately 6 million hot takes on what it accomplished, why it mattered. I wrote about it in my book way back in 2016 after that primary campaign ended. But today I wanted to take time to talk about Bernie on this week's podcast, not because the issues he brought to the forefront are more relevant than ever, I assume all of you listening know that. No, I want to talk about the worker organizing that the campaign did this time around, because it mattered and it was and is smart and powerful and something that campaigns going forward should learn from, and so I think should the labor movement. Bernie's base was always at least part of the so-called new working class, the young, the urban, often the downwardly mobile. This time around, the campaign looked at what it managed to do in 2016 and consciously built outward from that. The campaign targeted immigrant workers of color, particular workforces, You all probably saw the pictures of the pork plant workers in Iowa caucusing, or warehouse workers in California, nurses in Nevada. But maybe you didn't read about the way the campaign hired baristas to organize their industry, or how in recent weeks, as the coronavirus took off and workers began to organize in fear for their safety, the campaign identified its supporters who were working at some of the biggest companies in the country, Walmart, CVS, Whole Foods, and of course, Amazon, more about which later and connected them to the organizing campaigns that were ongoing at those companies. The Sanders campaign, like the Corbyn movement in the UK, understood and mobilized the changing working class. It understood that the big employers now are not just Midwestern factories, but major service and logistics companies, that baristas and warehouse workers are looking for their version of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the new thing that will move them forward, give them class power. 2.1 million individuals donated to the Bernie Sanders campaign. Think of that as 2.1 million members of a dues-paying organization. The coronavirus is remaking what the workplace looks like yet again, but we are learning in real time who the essential workers are. Grocery store workers, Amazon warehouse workers, migrant farm workers, the people who put food on our plates and keep us breathing in the hospitals. The economy after the pandemic won't look like it did before, and future labor and political organizing will have to take stock of the issues that the working class is facing as it faces them. The Sanders campaign pointed the way towards something new that wasn't forming unions and it turns out wasn't enough to win an election. But it taught us some incredibly important lessons about organizing the working class. Thanks, Bernie. And thank you to everyone who poured their heart into this campaign. And the last one, there will be time to talk about what went wrong, but you did so very much right.
3: The pandemic and the accompanying economic crisis have sparked campaigns in cities across the country for eviction moratoriums. Housing activists have seized this moment to defend renters and homeowners from being put out on the street in the midst of a public health disaster. In Denver, the local Democratic Socialists of America chapter is mobilizing for a full-on cancellation of rent for at least 90 days, as well as a cancellation of mortgage payments and utility bills. The campaign is driven by laid-off service workers, several of them having recently lost their jobs at the Denver International Airport. The campaign has already garnered support from progressive city councilors, and they're hoping to pressure the mayor, Michael Hancock, to sign on to the plan. I spoke with a few of these workers about how they've been struggling since getting laid-off, And why they are seeking direct intervention from the government. We'll start with Abby Harms, followed by a restaurant worker who prefers to remain anonymous, and then Jake Douglas, who used to work for United Airlines Catering.
0: My name is Abby Harms. Um, I was a drag performer. I mean, I still am, but all my gigs have been canceled um, under the name of Simon Paul. And I also worked at the Wizard's Chest part time as well, but two part time jobs, both of which I can not at this moment due. the Wizards just closed with the stay-at-home order and we were encouraged to apply for unemployment and I've just been trying to figure out when I can actually apply for unemployment. Every time I check the website, it says that you know you have to wait until they get guidelines from federal. So it's all very backlogged with the law passing and everyone having to refile whenever that is. And it's a little scary because, you know, I made a payment plan. So I paid, we paid half our rent, me and my partner. And we were asked to sign an agreement um, saying we would pay the rest by the 20th. And I'm just thinking, is that actually, is any of that stimulus money going to come by then? And now that I've signed this agreement, am I, you know, are they going to pursue that legally if I don't pay them by the 20th? So. It's all very scary for me. Um, you know i've I thought about applying for jobs, but as some other people on this call have said, um, you know it's a risk. I have asthma, and I don't want to work at a crowded King Supers and you know, risk catching coronavirus and which could be a possible instance for someone with asthma. So,
5: I work in the food and beverage industry. I work for a uh, independent restaurant group that is primarily um, located on the East Coast in, in Miami, Florida, and uh, Brooklyn. Um, we have one location out here. Uh, so I had kind of been, um, you know, tracking the news with other places, watching the, the, the news come out of uh, San Francisco with their citywide lockdown, um, and sort of anticipating um, that this was going to happen. Um, it's been really devastating for me and, and all of my co-workers and uh, the vast majority of my social circle um, outside of uh, you know, leftist stuff um, is primarily bartenders, servers, cooks, you know, people in the restaurant industry. Um, obviously the, the entire industry, industry has been devastated. Uh, I think it, hitting people particularly hard that are not necessarily, um, you know, depending on their, you know, uh, biweekly paycheck to get by, but, but depending on, on the tips that they're taking home nightly, um, you know, especially bartenders, you know, the 75% of their income is going to be in tips, the, the, you know, $8 an hour or whatever that they're getting is the base pay. Um isn't really much to further compound, um, you know, that loss of income. The unemployment benefits website in Colorado has been completely overwhelmed. Um, It was crashed for four or five days immediately after uh, the order went into effect. Uh, It was crashed actually uh, the day that the citywide order went into effect. And then the statewide order came, I think, a day or two behind that um, it made it a total nightmare. Uh, I've spent the last couple of weeks trying to help people navigate the application process, you know, uh, the specificities that you need to, to you know, enter into the fields on the unemployment website to have your claim approved and, um, had some, some really, uh, you know, stressful uh, occurrences where, where you know, my coworkers will come to me and say, um, oh, they denied my claim. And, you know, I, I know for a fact that they should have their claim approved and then we have to go and reverse engineer what was wrong, whatever. So that's definitely compounded the issue, made it
6: a lot worse. So, I mean, all of us feel that, you know, if we can't work, we can't, we can't pay. Um, and so this past week, we launched a public uh, campaign to ask the mayor of Dan- Denver, Michael uh, Hancock, and Denver City Council to do everything in their power to cancel all rent, uh, mortgage, and utility payments for the duration of the crisis, at least for 90 days. And uh, there have been cities that have talked about deferring, you know, rent. But you know, if we're continuing to be out of work, that's just more and more debt that we're going to be taking on. Um, and maybe we we'll won't get evicted right now, but we're going to be saddled with huge debt. And there's, you know, Denver's going to see a mass eviction at the end of this if something isn't done. And so on Wednesday, we had a press conference with many of the folks on this call, others as well, and uh, three local city councilors, um, two from Denver, uh, Candy Sedebaca, um, and Chris Hines, as well as one city council member from Aurora, uh, Juan Marcano, where um, they actually passed a resolution last week um, in the city of Aurora, calling on the state and federal government to cancel all rent, mortgage, and utility payments. And We also had um, the president of our local labor federation, Delf uh, Josh Downey, come and speak in favor of the demands on, on Wednesday, and have gotten uh, the official endorsement of Delf and also Unite Here uh, Local 23. And so, yeah, we're we're doing everything we can right now to um, ask the city to help, um, you know, folks who are laid off like us to do everything they can to, uh, you know, provide relief because we're just not going to be able to, it's not even a question of what's right and wrong is that we can't pay. We have no money. How are we supposed to pay? Something we've been hearing from the local apartment association is that, well, we should just work with our landlords to figure out a deal. Um, you know, that the, the government shouldn't do anything, but I mean, the reality is like, you know, in my uh, apartment complex, we're being offered, you know, oh, they'll waive late fees, but they're not doing anything to help with the base pay. And so, um, we really need, you know, mass movement in the city to, uh, win relief for renters. But, um, on the press conference on a Wednesday, we also heard from a, uh, a tenant from a local, um, apartment complex where folks have been organizing for about a year and they delivered a letter the same day of 100 tenants to their property management um, demanding that the company provide relief. So, you know, we're we're organizing laid off service workers like ourselves. There are folks through DSA who are also organizing their, you know, their co-tenants at the same time. And Denver is one of the most rent overburdened cities in the country to start with. And I don't know how we're going to get to May 1st without huge numbers of people just simply not being able to pay.
3: That was Jake Douglas, and before that, an anonymous restaurant worker, and before that, Abby Harms discussing the Denver rent cancellation campaign. These past two weeks have brought a spate of walkouts at Amazon's fulfillment centers in New York, Chicago, and Detroit. The workers have been demanding that Amazon do more to protect workers' health, in light of many cases of COVID-19 emerging at various Amazon facilities. It appears that many workers are finally reaching a breaking point with the constant anxiety and fear that pervade their workplaces. Amazon has responded by firing one worker organizer, Chris Smalls. And they're also rolling out some hefty PR about all the wonderful things they're doing to keep workers healthy and able-bodied. Workers at Amazon's JFK 8 facility in Staten Island are not buying it. They staged a protest this week, their second so far, to demand that the company shut down the workplace, following reports of 25 workers diagnosed with COVID-19 in recent weeks. Like the Barnes & Noble workers, they don't wanna go back to work unless they can be assured that they won't be needlessly placed at risk. I spoke with Jordan Flowers, a JFK 8 worker who is taking time off from work because he has an underlying health condition and is afraid of getting infected. I also spoke with Tanya Ramsey, a worker in the Detroit area who helped organize the walkout at her facility. Why did you walk out a second time? And I guess, uh, what were you hoping to
7: accomplish? Uh, So the first time, you know, the cases were kind of low. You know, we were just spreading awareness to the building that a lot of people, you know, COVID COVID is a virus that can spread really fast. And being in a warehouse with 5,000 people, you know, those 5,000 lives are at risk. So our message was to the people, you know, if you don't feel good, stay home, you know, just, you know, try to stay less outside the warehouse. I mean, try to stay outside the warehouse as much as you can. And our set, you know, it was successful. We had around 50, 60 people walk out the first time. And the second one for today, you know, we actually had around 40, 50 people, almost the same amount, 40, 50, uh, walk out. But this time my message was even bigger because we're up to like 30 cases. 27 were confirmed. But, you know, there's, there's human resources telling people to be quiet, about it. If you have it, they want you to be quiet. They're telling you they're gonna get quarantine paid. They're not paying you. So, you know, our message now is we have to get our demand. We have to make sure that our house is clean and we should feel safe at and work at every day. You know, like I said, five thousand people walking and out and we have to feel that we shouldn't fear we have to come in and work. We shouldn't have to have that type of fear in our body. We should feel like hey I wanna wake up, go to work, make money for weeks, you know, get paid but you know what I'm saying the fact that in a time like this, we shouldn't be working five thousand workers. We shouldn't be working at there's thirty COVID cases, and yet still operational. My team and I it's our main demand. We want the warehouse closed. We clean for two weeks, and we want them two weeks pay. We want the two weeks. We want the two weeks pay. And then if we, I mean, at the same time, you should know you should have testing on, at least have testing nearby where. You know, if you can test if workers are positive or negative and the ones that are negative, they can go back to work. But as of right now, they acting like they don't want to clean it and they're just going to keep hiring people every other day.
0: It was just they weren't doing enough to protect us. So we decided enough was enough. And something had to be done. So we just kind of organized it and followed through with it.
3: Were there any coworkers who were diagnosed or something or was there something that set it off?
0: Uh, Yeah, we actually had two confirmed cases when we started doing it. So that was kind of like our breaking point.
3: How long ago were the cases confirmed?
0: One was on the 23rd, one was on the 27th, and then we got a third confirmed on the
3: fourth, or on the first. And then we've had three, four,
4: five, six then, since then.
3: That was Jordan Flowers and Tanya Ramsey, Amazon workers who have taken a stand to demand a safe, fair workplace. And now for a bird's eye view of all these worker uprisings at Amazon, we're talking to friend of the podcast, Dania Rajendra. She heads Athena, a nationwide coalition of labor and community groups who are banding together to fight Amazon's hegemonic power by demanding safe, fair working conditions and sustainable jobs and business practices in the communities where Amazon operates. Alright, can you Give us the context for this latest spate of protests and walkouts that we've seen at Amazon facilities in different cities. I think we've had uh, walkouts in uh, New York, Chicago, and Detroit so far. How did that come about? And of course, these aren't the first protests that we've seen in Amazon facilities, but um, what triggered uh, this latest round?
8: So once upon a time, we had a pandemic followed by an enormous economic crash, and uh, that wasn't very good for the working people of Amazon land. So as folks have sheltered in place, as different states have sort of figured out the scope and scale of the crisis, people are relying on Amazon to bring them what they need, and in some cases, things that they want. More about that later. hmm And... So many businesses and industries have experienced this moment as the bottom falling out. Amazon has experienced this moment as an enormous spike in demand. And so they are hiring, they announced 100,000 new jobs a couple of weeks ago. It's possible they'll end up hiring more people. And so what that means is that the problems that existed before the pandemic and the problems that exist in the pandemic intersect into one toxic brew. Before the pandemic, these were already incredibly physically taxing jobs um, in an incredibly punitive environment. That's not different now that we're all in a pandemic. So in addition to those longstanding problems, We also have an explosion in the number of facilities with COVID exposure. And the workers say that Amazon is not as forthcoming as they could be or should be about the extent of exposure, which means that people are unable to make meaningful risk calculations about their own health and the health of the people they live with. And so they're rightfully furious about that, and they're very concerned about their own health and about being a vector, being exposed to corona at work, and then bringing it home to their block or home to their family members, who, of course, because working people and people of color disproportionately lack access to health care, healthy food, etc., disproportionately have the kind of underlying conditions that make COVID so scary. And how many people have walked out altogether? You know, numbers vary, but certainly dozens in the last week.
3: What's happened
1: to the workers who've gotten sick at these facilities so far? Are people getting time off? Are they still showing up to work?
8: So as a reminder, Amazon is owned by the richest human being on the face of the earth. And he as the ultimate boss here, and his trillion-dollar corporation have offered workers who can prove the diagnosis of COVID up to two whopping weeks off.
1: So just about exactly how long you're supposed to quarantine yourself.
8: Yeah. What workers report is that it is difficult to access this paid leave, inadequate as it is. Because as we all know, there's a bit of a challenge getting tested. And also uh, health and public officials are telling people who are not desperately ill to stay out of the system. So we've got reports about people who are concerned about their own health and or exhibiting symptoms yet unable to get the paid time off they're offered. Amazon did also offer unlimited unpaid time off in March and April. The guy who owns this company is the richest person on the planet and he offered people who make $15 or $17 an hour unlimited unpaid time off. It really is um, quite something. So we do know people who are not sure how they're gonna make their bills, but prioritizing their health or the health of a vulnerable housemate or family member or loved one over the potential of exposure at work.
3: Unlimited unpaid office. <laughs> so the ultimate kind of let them eat cake from Jeff Bezos. Can you explain how you went about uh, organizing these latest protests? And I guess, um, how did you create the um, the demands that you ultimately put forward? And maybe, of course, in, the, in, in answering this question, you can explain those demands as well.
8: Sure thing. So, uh, we didn't organize the protest, the workers organized the protest, and we follow the lead of the workers and are proud to do it. At JFK 8, Athena members Make the Road New York, NYCC, and line had already been working with the people who work there. Um, some of the leaders who have emerged in recent weeks as uh, leaders there are people who led an action back in November, talking about the need for... Uh, more time off task, which is what Amazon calls any time you're not putting things in boxes, you know, the time they need to go to the restroom or Rena Cummings, who's been particularly active in the last few weeks, told a harrowing story in November about her manager standing outside the bathroom while she was, like, desperately trying to finish up and the manager was counting down the seconds remaining in her break. Like, it's that kind of work environment. And people don't have additional time now to wash their hands, despite that being a primary mitigation factor for COVID. And other organizations inside the Athena Network, United for Respect, um, which got it start organizing Walmart workers, has also been in close touch with lots of Amazon workers, you know, the Warehouse Worker Resource Center in Southern California, the Awood Center in in Minnesota, the Warehouse Workers for Justice outside of Chicago. These are all organizations that have been working with warehouse workers, some of them long before Amazon became the dominant player in warehousing.
1: How has this moment then accelerated the organizing that was already going on in these places that you were just talking about? Um, And in terms of like, are we seeing people who were not interested in organizing before suddenly joining the walkouts? How do you think that that's changing workers' um, relationship to the company?
8: So I think one thing that's happening both inside and outside of Amazon is that people are really feeling the fact that we're in this moment and in every moment, we're all in ways in things together. I have been moved by some of the new leaders who have emerged um, talking about how previous to this moment working at Amazon was a good job for them. So Jaina Jump who is from Kentucky and worked in Indiana has been talking about, like, she worked at Amazon for years. She did very well. She she thought it was a great job, but she's a little older. She feels at risk for COVID and has been so horrified and betrayed by how the corporation has responded to the COVID crisis that it's moved her to become an activist. So that kind of thing is also happening alongside people who – for months or years have been like the way this corporation treats us is wrong and we have to do something about it so there's both a continuity and an acceleration Sarah as you said going back to Amazon's
3: sort of leave policies specific to COVID-19 you know they have offered this these two weeks off for people who have been diagnosed uh, with COVID-19 or are under quarantine I think can you talk about why exactly that is inadequate for this workforce and how would you like to see a paid leave policy work that works for everyone in amazon supply chain and is actually um you know fair in terms of protecting people's health
8: so first of all thanks to neoliberalism people work at amazon and make their company function in a variety of employment relationships so in the fulfillment centers Um, which are big buildings full of people, for lack of a better term, putting things in boxes. Those are people who are employed directly by Amazon, often full-time, have access to health care, actually. And um, those are the people who are eligible for this two weeks paid or unlimited unpaid time. And one of the reasons they made unlimited unpaid time a thing is because actually, Workers don't have unlimited unpaid time off. Usually, you could lose your job if you take too much unpaid time off. In the distribution centers, people are more likely to be part-time, and as I understand it, more likely to be subcontracted. And then in the delivery pieces, which is how who's bringing the package to your door, those people are much more likely to be so-called independent contractors or work for delivery service providers, which are like you know, intermediaries between Amazon and employment intermediaries between Amazon and the person who's doing the work. Even if the person who is delivering you, your package is wearing like Amazon gear from head to toe, they might not work directly for Amazon. So starting with the delivery folks, those people, Amazon created something called the Amazon Relief Fund. And those people, if their work is disrupted or if they get COVID, can apply for a grant of up to $1,200, which works out to 40 hours times two weeks times $15 an hour. Our position is that it's absurd that someone whose work is disrupted should have to apply for a grant to cover their hours. In the fulfillment centers, those are the people who are eligible for this new paid COVID time off, this two weeks that I was talking about. It's hard to get. Um, So there are many ways in which this is deeply inadequate. First of all, people might need to stay home if they're not sick because asymptomatic transmission is really a thing with COVID, And the person who knows best whether they are likely exposed is that person. And so the lack of paid sick time or paid leave, the stinginess and miserliness of only two weeks, which not everyone who gets sick recovers in two weeks, the failure to trust working people to know what's best for their own health, the health of the people they live around and with and around is really disheartening. So, there are like levels to what's inadequate about it. But those are some of the things I would say, like really what people need is a much more robust paid leave policy. Workers are telling us that they understand the importance and they're committed to making sure that people's grandmothers and you know whatever people have what they need in this moment of crisis and that they, they understand why they would risk their own health To deliver something that someone needs, and less so for the numbers of products that they're moving that are clearly not essential. Does
3: the Amazon paid leave policy does that include that that doesn't include uh, taking time off to care for uh, a loved one who is ill or it does um, not if you it is and or and if you or or anyone else in your household is immunocompromised uh, you cannot sort of preemptively uh, take time off um,
8: to care for yourself you can apply for this paid time off if you can prove you have gotten COVID and are sick.
1: So you have alluded to the thing that I was going to ask about next, which is that one of the things that the workers have stressed is that they should only be having to risk their health to ship out essential items and that they don't want to die for somebody's impulse purchases. So how could this be enacted and what does it kind of tell us about the role that Amazon plays in our society now.
8: I find it helpful to compare the continued delivery of non-essential items with their response this week that they were going to implement surveillance of people, of workers, um, and possibly fire them if they caught them violating the six-foot social distancing rule inside their facilities. So... Amazon is not only the way that people get the stuff that they order. It's also a data company. And their response, to paraphrase, has been sort of like, well, we had the stuff. So if the stuff's there, we're going to move it. But we're only accepting shipments of essential items. And then the definition of essential items is shifting. And there are questions about whether they're preferencing their own brands over third-party brands, and there's a whole host of our work around Amazon's dominance over the people who use the platform to reach customers who are not Amazon itself. That's one set of problems, right? But m- much of what they've said in the media has been like, wow, well, there's nothing we can do. That stuff is already in the system. As a customer, if you go on to amazon.com, there's lots of things you can order, right? I think I saw a news story about rubber chickens. Meanwhile, They've made very few meaningful mitigation strategies that really protect workers. And of course, worker health is public health. But what they have announced this week is that they're going to start doing surveillance via camera in their facilities and discipline and possibly fire anyone who violates the six-foot social distancing well, which up until last week they were still telling people to try to stay three feet apart so I mean
3: they posted a picture of uh, how they're spacing out the seating in the break rooms <laughs> yeah like, where they're like people are sitting at every sit other here. table now
8: <laughs> yeah it's they didn't like make more seating they just eliminated half the chairs like it's musical chairs so what they announced with this camera surveillance thing is they've got their best AI scientists on it and they're like throwing every resource they have on the data side to try and make this surveillance function of their own workers so that, frankly, they can fire people who they say violate their terms, right? Which is, of course, what they said about the worker they did fire at JFK-8 last week. So it's hardly commensurate, that they can't figure out how to marshal the enormous resources that a trillion dollar corporation, one of the largest on planet Earth, might have to effectively prioritize those goods that are really most important now. And therefore to, um, you know, reduce the risks that pe- working people are taking in order to ensure that people get that stuff, that it's just deeply incommensurate with the kind of response around surveillance and punishment Um yeah. you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're seeing this all over the place, right? The response to inadequate government preparation is to blame people for getting sick. But so one of the things that has happened at Amazon is the governor of Kentucky, speaking of government, did order the closing, at least temporarily, of an Amazon facility after there was a COVID-19 infection there. Is that a good start? What would you like to see in terms of action from public officials on that front?
8: More governors be like Kentucky Governor this year, please. So there was a COVID outbreak at this facility in Shepherdsville, which is just outside of Louisville. And Mm. among the features of this facility is that the purpose of the facility is to process customer returns of apparel. My understanding mm-hmm. is that it was a Zappos facility and then Amazon bought Zappos. So. so the governor ordered the shuttering of all non-essential businesses. Amazon is like, hi, we're delivering whatever household goods and cough syrup to homebound people. We're an essential service. Well, that makes sense on the face of it. But somehow, they're still continuing to do this sneaker return thing, at least according to news reports. So one of the things that Athena is asking and that um, thousands of people are signing on to this ask is to say to governors in the 23 states that have Amazon facilities, hey, can you check to make sure they're really just doing essential stuff? Because as you say, right, Mario... Crippen in outside of Detroit and others have been incredibly moving about like willing to risk my health and the health of my family members to make sure grandma gets cough syrup less willing to do that for someone's sneaker returns
3: wait so they didn't they shut it they almost shut it down except for sneaker returns is that right or
8: so they just shut down so that one facility that's what they did apparel returns and so they shut it down for a week um, okay. And I think, you know, time is a little fuzzy these days, but I think it's reopened now. But that kind of executive action from public officials is exactly what we think should be happening across the country, where Amazon is insufficiently protecting both public health and worker health.
3: There was the the, the first Amazon walkout at the JFK 8 uh, Fulfillment Center on Staten Island. Um, there was... Uh, a, a sacking of uh, Chris Small's, one of the organizers of the walkout. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, you know, what he did and what subsequently happened to him, and how that is playing out right now? Um, he, um, I think uh, there there was a, a memo leaked <laughs> regarding his treatment and what Amazon was. Thinking about him at the time, and meanwhile, Amazon is trying to uh, justify uh, firing him. So, explain, uh, you know, what what the deal is with uh, with his getting fired.
8: Chris Smalls took action a week ago, Monday, because he, along with his coworkers, was very concerned about how many people had COVID, whether the company was responding meaningfully. He took action in the early afternoon. And then a couple of hours later, the company fired him. So immediately, you know, in New York, the attorney general and the mayor and other people pointed out that uh, whistleblowers have protection and, um, and they were gonna look into Amazon's actions, which is great. We hope that they use all of the power in their offices to find out exactly what happened. Chris Miles was totally undaunted. He penned a really beautiful essay in The Guardian. And workers across the country are continuing to tell us, you know, this is bigger than my job. This is about everybody's health. This is about our health. And this is about, you know, the fact that we matter. And um, we saw a flurry of explanations from company executives. And then remarkably we saw a shocking level of response from the public and journalists saying these explanations don't totally make sense because like earlier I was saying you know they've made that they've created this pay leave but you have to go through all these hoops you have to really prove you had COVID etc so there's this sort of presumption that working people workers lie even though it's not my experience of Working people, but we don't generally have in our society the presumption that corporate executives lie. And of course, I'm not saying that <laughs> they lied. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that what we saw was a new level of public scrutiny for pronouncements from corporate executives, which I personally welcome.
3: So, can you explain what? Um, I mean, what is Smalls' situation right now? Does he have any legal recourse? Presumably, he he might be covered by. National Labor Relations Act or something like that uh, in terms of...
8: So, yeah, um, I'm not a lawyer. Chris Smalls is 1,000% capable of speaking for himself, so I am not speaking for him. Um, My understanding is he's continuing to work with the organizations that he first connected with around his concerns about Amazon. And um, uh, we also... Uh, Make the Road New York created a whistleblower protection fund. So there are some funds um, and uh, we um, are very pleased to hear how undaunted um, people are about speaking out. I think one of the other things that happened in the wake of that action from Amazon is that there was a huge outpouring of support um, for Chris Smalls, but also for everyone that people really feel that we're in this together at this moment. People really rely on the people who are bringing them their packages and beginning to see all of the people who make the package arrival possible. And there was a visceral response of like, that is wrong. And that's very heartening to see. And so we're you know, doing all we can to foster that kind of solidarity um, as workers continue to take action.
1: So one of the people that we heard from, who works at Amazon in that moment, was uh, former Obama press secretary Jay Carney. Why is it that these tech companies have? I mean, particularly they've hired a lot of political operatives from the Obama administration to work there. But like, like, what does Jay Carney do at Amazon other than be a former Obama
8: employee? I believe he is their chief spokesperson. So. He says stuff publicly. I, I didn't just see him on Twitter, although I saw him on Twitter. I also heard him on NPR and I saw him on the news talking about what's happening in Amazon facilities and in Amazon operations. So I think that's his job. But really, you should ask him.
1: Yeah, but I mean, there, there's clearly this movement from the Obama administration into the tech sector um and there's something there's some sort of mutual back scratching going on here right like there's a reason that these companies want jake carney and it's not just because he's a uniquely talented spokesperson because presumably amazon can hire all sorts of people
8: i you know amazon and other tech companies have made big strides in recent years in upping their presence in Washington and state capitals around the country. They're spending more on lobbying efforts. They increasingly are looking at public contracts as an important source of revenue and work for the corporations. That's part of why we see, like, there's the whole No Tech for Ice campaign, right? And Athena is the Amazon part of that. But there's a lot of tech in bed with the right hand of the state. And it's clearly an important revenue source, but also clearly an important part of the company's self-identity. So it's not just Amazon, right? Like Salesforce refuses to cut their ties with the immigration authorities. Amazon suing the Department of Defense over this big Jedi contract for cloud computing that went to Microsoft. Like, there's a lot there around that. Um, And I think some of that is about money, but uh, much of it is probably about power. And
1: then so related and you mentioned that the tech against ICE organizing, but what's been the response to from? white collar workers at Amazon to the warehouse workers actions recently.
8: Oh, the solidarity is so amazing. (laughs) Oh, so, so exciting. Amazon employees for climate justice, um, which is not a part of the Athena coalition publicly announced their support for the blue collar workers. Soon you'll see a wave of solidarity selfies and other kinds of expression of solidarity from other parts of tech I imagine that will only increase as efforts continue. Uh, we saw it last year during Prime Day when the Awood Center members who work at Amazon walked off the job and there was a white-collar delegation in solidarity with them and these like incredible solidarity notes from around the world where people wrote about their shared commitments together. Before we leave the punitive and chris small stuff i did want to say that part of what was leaked in that memo was how hair raisingly racist their response was Mm -hmm. yeah right like chris Small, mario crippen uh, not everyone who's taking action in this moment is black uh jaina isn't black and um you know tanya from Michigan, who's been in the news, also not black. Some of our leaders in Staten Island are Latino. But we do have these incredible black leaders, and they represent kind of a wide gamut of black experience in the United States. We've got Awood members who are part of immigrant families and refugee families, some of them a strong and organized East African community Muslims, right? Like we've got more descendants of the Great Migration and other parts of the African-American experience in other parts of the work, it is horrifying that Amazon executives suggested that they are well positioned to discredit the workers and their demands because many of the leaders are black or because um, Chris himself is black and the kinds of things that were revealed in that memo are just shameful.
3: Going back to the health and safety piece at work, I was wondering if, I mean, Amazon, I, I mean, I was just checking their blog today and it seems like every day they sort of roll out these new measures that they're taking supposedly to safeguard workers on the job. Um, and meanwhile, I the workers I've been talking to, they've been talking about wanting to shut down warehouses um, and, you know, sort of have them thoroughly disinfected. And then, you know, of course, paying people for the time they spend um, out of work because the warehouses are being shut down. So, like between sort of, you know, adding extra hand washing stations, which is what Amazon talks about, those types of things, and uh, shutting down warehouses. I mean, can what is the sort of best practice that you you would you would like to see in place for um, you know when there's a diagnosis, and also um, you know things like how would workers be informed as as to you know uh, a positive diagnosis for COVID nineteen, um, you know, in in their workforce, um, you know what what would what would a, an appropriate response be?
8: Amazon should tell the truth about how many people have COVID that they know of, and they should tell it fast and not hold on to that information, which is what workers have suggested. Amazon has been doing. They should make it possible through paid leave for everyone who should stay home to stay home. That's like way more paid leave than two weeks. And that's not this rigmarole about proving you've got COVID. That's like, we trust you to make the right decision for yourself and your family and and the people you live around. And that's what Best Buy did, right? Like Best Buy. That's what Starbucks did after the Starbucks workers really pushed them into it. They're shutting down operations and they're paying people because they have a lot of money and that's what they should do absolutely they should shut down facilities that are exposed and they should absolutely clean everything and pay the people who clean things a lot more money and we know what's driving the pandemic is person-to-person transmission and so in thinking about shutting down facilities for deep cleaning It is about the surfaces because science suggests that the virus is viable on non-porous surfaces like plastic and stainless steel for up to three days. But it's not only about the surfaces. It's also about all of the kinds of mitigation factors that are inherent in these big facilities full of people working their butts off at physically taxing jobs. The thing that they could do right now while they figure out Closures and sanitization and whatnot is just eliminate the production quotas so people can wash their hands as they need to.
3: Lastly, a uh, part of the mission of Athena is to organize sort of up and down Amazon supply chain. Can you talk about why that's important, um, especially for a company like Amazon? Um, you know, where many of the people in its workforce are not directly employed, um, and sort of how that how that speaks to a you know a dilemma that many many workers face um, across the across the workforce today.
8: Athena is visualizing everyone who is directly affected by Amazon. So that includes all of the people whose work goes into making the corporation function, but is not limited to workers. Right. It includes small businesses. Um, and community businesses. It includes who live around the facilities. So among the reasons that workers are so worried about bringing COVID home is because the communities that live around the warehouse clusters in the Inland Empire, um, east of LA, and in outside of Chicago are places where The air quality is already compromised and asthma rates are already extremely high because of the environmental cost of the way our goods movement is organized. And Amazon has a particular responsibility as a driver of goods movement. So people are really worried about bringing COVID home to people with asthma, people with diabetes, people with other kinds of underlying health conditions, because of course it's our communities that lack access to healthcare to begin with, and so it's so it's neighbors, it's um, millions and millions of public dollars have gone to recruit this corporation to the places it puts down facilities, to fuel its its growth. So we all we all have a stake in how Amazon functions. And um, Athena thinks that everyone with a stake should have a say, and that it's going to take all of us connected to build the solidarity and the power together to restore public power over consolidated private power, like at Amazon.
1: So you sort of just answered this question, but you know, as the author of an article calling for Amazon to be nationalized. I wouldn't be able to let you off the phone without sort of saying what is the goal to see happen to done to Amazon?
8: Well, with 52 organizations, Sarah, there isn't just one goal. Um, (laughs) Fair point. Right. There are some things that Amazon does that we think should just stop. We just don't think that there is any reason that police departments need an end run around warrant searches via a video doorbell dragnet system. Like we just don't think that that's a thing. I think we could just stop doing that. That's, that's what I think should happen to that. It's fascinating to me to see Amazon qualify as an essential service. There has been some discussion, I think perhaps from the mouth of Mr. Bezos himself of Amazon as the quote unquote new red cross. Now, Mm-hmm. The Red Cross, as you may recall, is a non-profit organization. It's not perfect, but it is not deliberately dedicated to consolidating as much wealth as possible into very few hands. That is not its its purpose. So it's fascinating to watch this distribution network be classified as an essential service, which raises a bunch of stuff that um, scholars like Sabil Rahman from Demos and Zephyr Teachout and others have raised about like, is this a public utility? Are there examples from the progressive and the populist traditions where we might um, adapt the regulatory frameworks we've already established for things like essential services or necessary interstate commerce or whatever that apply to the reality of what Amazon is? Both its physical infrastructure, right, like in that we're relying on Amazon to deliver necessary household goods and the web cloud computing sort of undergirding of the, um, the digital economy that it also provides, which incidentally, you didn't ask me about boycott. But one of the reasons that we, of course, encourage people to shop local And there's no shame in ordering things off Amazon, although right now, please do not order something you don't desperately need. Um, It's because the revenue driver for Amazon is Amazon Web Services, and extricating your business from Amazon Web Services is extremely difficult.
4: I was
3: going to say, I mean, uh, we're all talking, I mean, we've primarily been talking about the retail side now, but, um, you know, Amazon relies so heavily on it's cloud computing services. And so to some extent, it's almost like, um, yeah, you can see why, why it it increasingly treats um, these frontline workers as expendable because, um, you know, the, it's real, it's real massive investment is in this thing that we can't even see. So um, it's kind of depressing.
8: Well, and those things really work together, right? The massive amount of data that they have on, uh, everyone and on our buying habits allows them to potentially supplant the market, right? If the market is theoretically placed where signals about supply and demand uh, come together, if they know more about what we need and can crunch all that data, then they, they don't just um, own the market, they become the market. And that's deeply dangerous Amazon's governance is deeply dangerous, not only for people who who's, who work directly or indirectly for the company, but for all of us. And that's, that's why our tagline is delivering democracy. And that's why we're so focused on um, making sure that everyone who is touched by Amazon in our society has a way to connect to the kind of Public infrastructure and public regulation and public power that is appropriate. I think that covers it.
0: Unless I um, did get to want to get to, no idea.
8: I just want to do a call for solidarity. Like, hey, listeners of the Labored, please post a solidarity selfie and tag us in it so we can retweet it. We have a little graphic that helps people express solidarity with the with everyone bringing stuff to your door. We are all ears about creative new ideas about how to express solidarity when it's not possible to show up with a sign at a picket line. So get at us on Twitter or on Facebook and send us your best ideas and we'll do our best. And Uh,
3: and you're still circulating that petition, right? Um,
8: mm sign on on to our online petition because that too is a way in which we build power.
1: That was Dania Rajendra of Athena, and you will find links to everything we've talked about here at descentmagazine.org. And if you are an Amazon worker, we want to hear from you. Email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org.
0: You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
1: And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that. I've been joking a lot lately that everyone is a labor journalist now, but it remains true that some people are better at it than others. This week, I'm giving some kudos to friend of the show Susie Cagle at The Guardian, who wrote a piece titled, California's farm workers pick America's essential produce unprotected from coronavirus. She begins, quote, Amadeo Sumano, picks strawberries with his bare hands in Ventura County, on California's central coast, and packs them into plastic containers bound for supermarkets. He received a letter from his employer informing pickers about the importance of hand-washing amid the coronavirus outbreak. But Sumano, 38, and his co-workers, he said, have not been given any gloves. Nothing has changed at work, Sumano said in Spanish. The distance principle, six feet between people, does not work in agriculture. He worries about getting sick or having his hours cut as some growers contend with a loss in food service orders, and the financial pressure that would come with either scenario made even more intense because of his undocumented status. It is an honor to be a farm worker and an essential worker, said Sumano, but I have many worries, End quote. The agriculture companies in California who produce, Kegel notes, two-thirds of the country's fruit and nuts and one-third of its vegetables say that their workers are protected, but the workers tell a different story. Kagel writes, quote, Researchers and advocates estimate between 60% and 75% of California's more than 400,000 agricultural workers are undocumented. The United Farm Workers of America estimates only 10,000 are unionized. An additional 20,000 are in California on H-2A visas, a visa category that has seen some processing delays amid coronavirus shutdown orders, end quote. Advocates for farm workers continue, quote, What we noted immediately was that workers were not being provided protections or information. Growers are not even trying, and that's gotten workers very scared, said Armando Elenis, secretary-treasurer of the United Farm Workers of America. The last hands that touch that produce before the consumer puts it in their mouth is a farm worker's hands, so we better care about what happens to these workers. He laughed at the notion of growers voluntarily offering hazard pay to compensate for their new risks, as some frontline workers in other sectors have demanded. The essential part doesn't show up on their paycheck. They're lucky to get minimum wage, he said. They're getting paid the same, yet they're exposing themselves to more dangers, said Irene de Baracua spokesperson for Lideres Campesinas, an advocacy organization of and for California female farm workers. There is no standard for safety orientation. Sometimes we're hearing they just get a five-minute talk, stay six feet apart, don't do this, don't do that, but they're working in big crowds. It feels like it's not being taken seriously because the money is more important." End quote. Farm workers, too, are a high-risk workforce for many reasons, Kagel notes, an aging labor force facing higher rates of respiratory disease and hypertension. They often live jammed into small apartments, further increasing their risk, and the social safety net those workers rely on is strained to the breaking point dealing with the crisis already. Finally, the real fear is that the work might go away. Even though Americans' food demands haven't disappeared, the closing of restaurants has shaken up the supply chain and means that food is rotting, unconsumed. Cagle has a further piece on this subject, also with The Guardian this week, and we recommend you keep up with her work. You can also find my interview with a Florida farm worker, a member of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, in our belabored stories coverage at the dissent website, dissentmagazine.org. And if you are a farm worker, get in touch with us at
3: belaboreddescentmagazine.org. At my pick for Arg is Capitalism Caused the COVID 19 Crisis by Andre Markovchik in Jacobin. Now, I know that many people are saying that the pandemic is an embodiment of longstanding inequalities in society, but can we really say that the crisis we are living through is a product of capitalism itself? Turns out you don't have to look very far to see evidence of the nexus of politics and profit in capitalism that has made the current crisis not just likely, but inevitable. Markovchik starts with the overarching political narrative surrounding the coronavirus crisis, which is that the world has been caught off guard and the economic devastation and social chaos we're experiencing now are the fallout of an unforeseeable catastrophe. He notes that the Trump administration, which has been pushing to open the US for business as soon as possible, wants to convince us that capitalism is what will ultimately save us, when in fact, it was a driving force that rendered the world, and particularly the world's wealthiest country, utterly ill-prepared for the pandemic. Markovchik gives some concrete examples of how we got to 1.5 million cases of COVID-19 worldwide. After the SARS epidemic, back in the aughts, California ramped up its pandemic preparedness by building three mobile crisis hospitals and setting up a medical equipment stockpile, including N95 masks and ventilators, along with 21,000 hospital beds. But it took yet another capitalism-induced crisis, the Great Recession, to upend this pandemic readiness infrastructure just five years later. Governor Jerry Brown and the Democrat-controlled legislature in 2011 imposed a severe austerity budget that effectively gutted the system that had been put in place. Tragically, that stockpile of N95 respirators, so desperately needed now, soon disappeared as those resources were stripped down in the name of fiscal savings. Another example of how capitalism makes us less prepared for pandemics involves not government austerity, but the greed of the medical device industry. A decade ago, a small manufacturer developed a model of a cheaper ventilator that could be quickly deployed at scale in the case of a pandemic. But, as the New York Times has reported, the invention was frozen when the company that manufactured it got swallowed by Covidian, a big corporation that is also in the business of ventilators. More expensive ventilators, that is. Some haggling over the purchase price ensued, and it led to years of delay. Meanwhile, today, federal and state governments are scrambling to meet the soaring demand for ventilators in hospitals overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients. It's impossible to calculate how many lives may have been lost due to this delay in procuring the ventilators, but it's safe to assume that had the government had the foresight to obtain these ventilators years earlier, our hospitals might be slightly less desperate for such a basic piece of medical equipment. But that's the thing about capitalism. It forces all future planning to center around generating profit rather than protecting public health and welfare. Markovchik writes, quote, It's never been clear that the billions in profits that pharmaceutical and medical device manufacturers have raked in over the decades as the price of private efficiency have left us with exactly nothing, unquote. An alternative to such a ridiculous market-based system would be nationalization. And the call for nationalization has in fact been ringing louder and louder as the pandemic metastasizes and our privatized, decentralized healthcare system buckles under agonizing pressure. The third example of how capitalism is bad for our health is an illustration of what happens when corporate interests capture part of the public health infrastructure. The Hahnemann University Hospital in Philadelphia was shut down last year because it was supposedly not profitable enough to justify its continued operation. To cope with the influx of COVID-19 cases, though, the city of Philadelphia sought to lease the hospital. However, it gave up when the owner, a real estate firm, demanded a usurious sum of nearly $1 million a month and now the hundreds of beds inside that hospital are idling. Perhaps nationalized hospitals could have prevented this absurdity. I guess we won't know until the next pandemic. For now, it's too late for the cities under siege. New York State, like Philadelphia, has also hemorrhaged hospital beds in recent years. In fact, 20,000 hospital beds have vanished over the last two decades. It's about a 28% drop driven by Albany's relentless demand for cost efficiency. So now, in New York, the epicenter of COVID-19, we're in the middle of a pandemic with no end in sight, enlisting the help of the Army Corps of Engineers to convert public spaces into field hospitals. All because, years ago, we decided to slash hospital beds in order to save money. And in Philadelphia, a perfectly good hospital is being mothballed because the landlord puts his bottom line above the lives of local residents. And there's yet another dimension to this pandemic not covered in the article, which also underscores how capitalism has not only aggravated, but precipitated the public health crisis. Here in New York, we're seeing the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, particularly Black and Latinx households. that are the least prepared of all for the onslaught of the virus. They face poverty, institutionalized racism, language barriers, and lack of access to health care. And the economic realities of being a low-wage worker in the city, Many of them have jobs that force them to keep working and exposing themselves every day as the virus rages across the city. All those are risk factors, but they are also byproducts of an economy that forces people to choose between a paycheck and their health. Capitalism didn't create this virus, but capitalism is an opportunistic pathogen, and it can turn every health vulnerability into a social catastrophe. For now, we can try to limit our exposure, but we really need to inoculate our communities against corporate greed. At the very least, we should not turn to capitalism as a solution to this crisis. We need to socially distance ourselves from business as usual. And that's it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks to Natasha for making us sound good. And you can go to dissentmagazine.org to get all of our archived episodes. And you can also sign up to be a sustaining member of this podcast so you can keep on supporting the work that we do. And if you're a worker working in a so-called essential job, or if you're out of work and miserable and on your 300th call to your state unemployment office, or if you're struggling to decide whether to risk going to work tomorrow, or you're organizing a walkout with your fellow coworkers to demand a safer workplace, please let us know at hashtag belabored on Twitter. You can also email belabored at descentmagazine.org. And of course, get in touch with us if you want to share your story about working or not working during the pandemic for a new series of stories called Belabored Stories. And you can check that out at descentmagazine.org. Stay safe and over and out.
0: You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.